Our scripture today is John 16, verse 16 through 33. A little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is that that he said to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, so they, they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? Do we not know that he is do we not know what he is talking about? Jesus knew that he wanted to ask him that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that, is your, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name and do not say, and I do not say that to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Steve, and uh, I am one of the pastors at uh, Frontline Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, I had the, the privilege for several years of pastoring together with Tim while uh, his family was in Oklahoma. Uh, it's really good to be back here with you again. The, those of us at Frontline Church really have a special place in our hearts for everyone at, at Sacred Mission. Oftentimes, we will uh, take time during our Sunday services to pray for you at, at Sacred Mission. Uh, we don't get to see you every week. We don't even get to see you every month. But I just want you to know that you're never far from our hearts and our minds. Um, so it's really good to be here again to be with you face to face. So let's, let's go before the Lord. We'll ask him uh, to help us as we look into his word. Father, we, we come before you and we say, Lord, we are grateful for your word. It truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
Father, I pray that, that as we look into your word today, that it'll go deeper than just our heads. Father, that it will go into our hearts and it will actually change us, Lord. We just invite you to come and change us into the image of your son, Jesus. We ask it. We ask it for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that all of us would agree that the past couple of years have been different than we expected that they would. Uh, they've even been different than anything that any of us have experienced before 2020 came along. Um, there's an old saying that has been attributed to an ancient Chinese man that said, uh, may you live in interesting times. Now, at first hearing, that sounds pretty good because I want my life to be interesting. But then you start thinking about it and uninteresting times are times of peace and tranquility when nothing is really rocking the boat. So may you live in interesting times is actually a curse. <laughs> um, it means times of trouble, times of trial, and a storm that's threatening to sink the boat. Well, I turned um, 70 last year, and that's giving me a little bit different perspective as I look around at our world. The political divisions, the racial unrest, uh, the uncertainty and the fear that I hear in people as they talk about the future uh, are, are more than I've heard and seen since the 1960s. Now, for all the great music that came out of the 1960s, and it was the best music for like two centuries, um, the, the 60s were also a time of great turmoil, and there were a time uh, for real difficulty for a lot of us that were living through that. 58,000 young men of my generation died in the jungles and the rice paddies of Vietnam. See, um, five times that many civilians died at the same time there. Uh, we experienced three assassinations of major political and social uh, figures during the 1960s. So how many of you were alive and, and remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you heard about President Kennedy being assassinated? Yeah, me too. None of us are ever going to forget that. Well, as the 60s came to a close, rioters were burning our cities and our colleges. Drugs were everywhere. Heck, LSD was legal to buy and sell until late 1968. There was a feeling that our country and really the world as a whole was going to hell in a handbasket. And into all that confusion and all that fear, God poured out his spirit. It became known as the Jesus Movement, and, um, and I was caught up in that along with tens of thousands of other young people of, um, of my era. So I watched the topic of conversation change from drugs and politics and um, rock and roll to Jesus and his power, what he was doing in the world. We baptized thousands of new converts in the ocean, uh, in lakes, in streams, in fountains, uh, any place that we could find water. We told anyone who would listen about God and about the phenomenal things that he was doing in the earth. Uh, one of those young men from the Jesus movement, now grown old, wrote this a few years ago. 
the Jesus movement permanently defined my own expectations of gospel ministry. I was there. It ruined me for life. I cannot settle for routinized ministry. I saw what only God can do, as did many of my contemporaries. Our restless hearts will never stop aching for a new visitation of the Lord upon our land. Maybe we're at the front end of a new awakening. The Jesus movement was like a power surge. It came and it went. But this time, more slowly, we're planting churches, building websites, writing books, forming networks, and so forth. This time, it's not going away, but only keeps coming. This time, the spiritual momentum could become greater, maybe far greater, to reshape the rest of the century for the greater glory of Christ. This 64-year-old ex-hippie street preacher prays it will be so. That's Pastor Ray Ortland. Some of you know who Ray Ortland is. Well, society looked out of control, and everything looked pretty bleak in the 60s when God intervened. It actually looked a whole lot like what we're seeing around us now in society. I'm with Ray Ortland on this one. Father, do it again. Pour out your spirit. Intervene in our world to pull us back from the edge. So we find ourselves again living in interesting times. But the things that are happening in today and in our lifetimes are not the first time that people have lived in tumultuous times. Around the time of Jesus' birth, the people of Israel had also been living in interesting times. They had repeatedly been conquered by the nations around them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now they were, um, they were under the rule of Rome. They had experienced a civil war, and now their society was fractured into several different groups that were leading it, groups that detested each other, and we're all vying for the, the hearts and the minds of the people. So all that makes our interesting times seem a little less unique, doesn't it? Um, that first century was the time that God chose to send his son Jesus into the world. So I, you know, he, he gave us then four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And I appreciate the fact that there are four gospel accounts. Uh, each was written to a specific first century people group. And each gives us a view of Jesus from that unique writer's perspective. Um, Matthew begins his gospel with, with uh, Jesus' genealogy, and then he takes 28 chapters to build to the conclusion that Jesus is all that he claimed to be. Luke spends 24 chapters proving that Jesus is not only a man, but he's also God. Mark skips the genealogies, and he goes straight into telling the story of Jesus' life, especially the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. Well, the last time that I spoke here was in May, and at that time, we were in the book of John. Anybody want to guess where we are today? We're in the book of John. <laughs> I love the book of John. Um, unlike the other gospels that kind of build to a conclusion about Jesus, um, John just cuts to the chase. See, um, the first verse of the first chapter of John's book, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John says, let's just start with the punchline. Jesus is God, okay? Uh, look around you. Everything that you see was made by him. There's not a single thing that you can see that wasn't made by Jesus. And then he not only tells the story of Jesus' life, but he also gives us some really big ideas like this one. God loves the world in this way, that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So John writes, whoever believes in him. Well, let's push pause for just a second and talk about belief in Jesus. I love that the way the Amplified Bible um, talks about belief, because whenever it says believes, it says believes in, trusts in, and relies on Jesus. So when John says believes in, he's not talking about us giving a mental nod to Jesus' existence. Uh, he's talking about trusting in and relying on Jesus. Belief that actually makes a difference in the way that we live the six days of the week between Sundays. See, it's radical belief. It changes the way we behave. James writes in the second chapter of his book, you say that you have faith for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. Okay? So if all we're doing is giving a mental assent to Jesus' existence, then we have something important in common with Satan because he does that. He knows for sure that Jesus exists. He just doesn't trust in him or rely on him. So Jesus calls us to climb in the boat with him. And sometimes that boat, it looks like an amphibious landing craft that was used on the D-Day invasion. So Jesus, where are we going? Um, you see that land up there? Um, we're going to invade that land. And what we're going to do is we're going to go behind enemy lines and we're going to rescue people who are in bondage right now. See all those, uh, those cliffs with the machine gun nests and the big cannons bristling everywhere? You're going to scale those cliffs and then you're going to fight your way inland. But don't worry because I'm going to be with you the whole time. Now, even if you get killed, you win. The only way to lose in this battle is to turn back, okay? In reality, the fight that we're involved in is more global, and the stakes are even higher than they were in the D-Day invasion. This battle has been raging for over 2,000 years, and it'll continue until the day that Jesus returns. But when Jesus returns... It's not going to be the eight-pound, two-ounce baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That's not who's coming back. Who's coming back is King Jesus. He's got a new name tattooed on his thigh. His robes have been dipped in blood, and he's got a sword. He's on a white horse, and he's leading the army of God to defeat all the enemies of God. And that battle... That is no contest. There is no question about who wins that one. Jesus wins. And even Satan knows that. John writes that Satan knows that his time is short. And so what he's doing is he's taking out everything he can on us. 
You know why Satan hates humanity so much? It's because the first man and the first woman were made in the image of God. And though that image of God has been marred in us by sin, every time Satan sees us, it reminds him. He sees that image of God and it reminds him of the God that he rebelled against, the God that uh, defeated him flatly on the cross. And so he does everything in his power to disfigure that image of God in us. A wimpy mental nod to Jesus' existence is not going to give us what we need for the battle that we're called to fight. Now, the church has sometimes used the phrase accepting Jesus to describe our commitment to him. Um, that's just bad theology. It is. We don't need to accept Jesus. We need to surrender to King Jesus and get equipped for the battle and get engaged in all that God has called us to. See, anything less than that is going to have a hard time holding up when the circumstances of life start not going our way. I heard somebody say recently that we were made for this day and this day was made for us. See, you and I weren't called to the purposes of God in first century Israel or 16th century England or even the purposes of God in America during the 1940s. See, um, we were called and equipped for this season and this place. See, the Apostle Paul and King David, they were equipped for their own time. They were not equipped for our time. They would be woefully inadequate here. See, this is our time. We are the people who are equipped for this time and this place. This is our time. This is our place. We are made for the day, and the day is made for us. Acts 13.36 tells us this. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. See, that needs to be our goal, too, to serve the purposes of God in our generation, to pass the baton to the next generation so that they can do exactly the same thing. So that's my introduction. We need to keep moving here, get, get into these verses in John if I'm going to get you guys out of here by 2.30. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, so Jesus starts our passage today saying, a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while, and you will see me. So I can just see the disciples rolling their eyes and going, here we go again, another one of, the, of Jesus' riddles. What on earth does he mean by a little while? And uh, so they start to try and figure out amongst themselves what he's talking about. And, uh, and Jesus sees that they're, that they're not getting it. And so he gives them another illustration. Jesus um, talks about a woman who is in childbirth. And he uses several words to describe what that woman is going through. Weeping, lamenting, anguish, and then three times he mentions sorrow. But then he says that her anguish is turned to joy when her baby is born and all her focus is on that baby. But then he says that it's going to be that way with them too. They'll have sorrow but then their sorrow will be turned to joy when they see him again. 
And they respond by saying, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. But you get the idea that the disciples are actually talking above where they actually are. Um, because Jesus' response to them is, do you really believe? And then he proceeds to tell them that they're all getting ready to abandon him and leave him alone. Then in verse 23, Jesus begins talking about asking things of the Father in Jesus' name. So let's read that again together. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, um, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So this idea of asking in Jesus' name has sometimes been a real puzzle and even a stumbling block for some of us who are trying to follow Jesus. So I, I want to say a couple of things about this. This verse just told us, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. See, whatever you ask he will give you. That sounds a lot like a blank check. We ask and he does it. If that's all there is to it, that phrase in Jesus' name becomes a magic wand or an incantation. See, um, abracadabra. <laughs> um, we rub the lamp, the genie pops out to give us our three wishes. See, if that's, if that's all that means. Um, only it doesn't work that way. And when it doesn't, we can stumble over that. Why did I ask and God didn't answer? See, uh, why doesn't God do what he said he would do? Well, part of the answer can be found back in John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. So can you see the difference between an unconditional ask whatever you want and a conditional, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask what you want. See, those verses don't contradict each other. They complement one another. But it's, it's a little bit like this picture. I think we've got a slide. Yeah, that thing right there. What you're looking at is an, is an Egyptian signet ring that was worn by one of the pharaohs around the time of King David. So if the pharaoh made a decree or he granted a request, he would use that signet ring uh, to show his approval by pressing it into the wax or the clay seal that was sealing the document. It was like his signature, only better. The only other person who ever got to touch that ring was the king's most trusted counselor and his confidant. He also got to use the ring because the king knew this man to his core, and he knew that the ring was safe in his hands. That man could represent the king because the king trusted him. That's what in Jesus' name means. We don't even need to say the words in order for us to be doing things in Jesus' name. Why? If we abide in him and his words abide in us, then he trusts us to ask and he'll do it. Because the, like the king's advisor and confidant, we're not trying to build our own kingdom, but his. 
See, he can trust us with his signet ring. And that's a world away from rubbing the lamp and getting your wishes. Well, the last of our verses today from John 16 is verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have great trouble and suffering. But cheer up, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Tim talked about persecution and suffering for Jesus' sake. Now that kind of suffering is something that we could call external suffering. Okay? It's suffering that comes to us from people because of the stand that we're taking for Jesus. But there's also another kind of suffering, a kind that comes as a result of our own brokenness and the brokenness of those close to us. Our bad choices and the bad choices of our parents, our acquaintances, even our closest friends can cause us suffering. Choices that we and they have made in the past and choices that sometimes we still make. The Pharisees going after Jesus because he had healed a man with a withered hand and he happened to do it on the Sabbath. That was external suffering. Okay? Peter denying that he knew Jesus was a kind of internal suffering that came from Peter's fear of man and his self-protection. See, it caused Peter shame and remorse. That was suffering. Well, the disciples had spent three years listening to Jesus teach them and watching him express the Father's love to the world. See, that's over a thousand campfires that they spent together. That was great. The disciples had even been sent to minister um, apart from Jesus, uh, praying for the sick and casting out demons. But those three years had largely been a training exercise for them. See, um, the next 24 hours, it was going to be a test time. And, um, you know, and they, it, it was going to lead them to a really dark place and show them their own brokenness. Well, if we back up and take like a, a 35,000 foot view of the book of John, you'll see that the first 12 chapters of John uh, cover three years in the life of Jesus, really from the beginning of his public ministry until about the last week before his death. But then, beginning in chapter 13, the book slows way, way down. And most of the next nine chapters happened during Jesus' last night on earth. Okay, So 12 chapters cover three years, nine chapters cover about 24 hours. So we're in chapter 16 now. Jesus had already washed his disciples' feet. They had eaten the Passover meal together. And Judas had already left and was at that moment betraying Jesus to the religious leaders. Why is it that John slows down so much? Well, I can't imagine what Jesus must have been going through that last night before the cross. See, he was only hours away from taking on himself the sins of the whole world. He knew that when that happened, for the first and only time in all of creation, the Father was going to turn his face away from him. He was going to be left utterly alone, bearing all our sin and all our brokenness. We were supposed to be the one being crucified, but he was going to take all of that on himself and, um, 
you know, on a, on a Roman cross suspended between two criminals. So how does Jesus spend the last night before all that happened? See, if it had been me knowing that I was going to die the next day, I'm afraid that whole evening would have been all about me and all about what I was getting ready to go through. Jesus spent the evening encouraging his guys, letting them know what they were going to be in for, though for the most part they didn't understand it. See, in every way he could, as a good shepherd, he was getting between the danger and them. But when it all started coming down, and Peter denied even knowing him, and all the disciples ran away, and Jesus was taken and beaten and mocked and scorned and spit on and finally crucified, do you think that it helped the disciples to know that Jesus had already told them that all that was going to happen? You better believe it did. In the aftermath of Jesus' death, the disciples were in agonizing fear, shame, confusion, and despair. But they could hang on to the knowledge that Jesus had told them beforehand that that was exactly what was going to happen. I'm sure it helped them to survive that night and the next three days before they saw him again. Judas didn't have that comfort, so he went out and killed himself. Luke records something that happened that last night that Jesus spent with his disciples. They had gotten, the disciples had gotten into yet another argument about who was the greatest. Jesus changed the subject and he said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers so much in those two verses. The interaction between God the Father, Jesus, Satan, and the disciples. Satan was demanding to have them. That first you there, when he said, Satan has demanded to have you, that you is plural. He was talking about all the disciples, saying he's demanding to have all of you guys in order to sift you like wheat. And what was he going to do with them? He was going to sift them. He wanted to winnow them. Okay? In the first century, winnowing happened by taking a winnowing fork and grabbing the wheat and throwing it up in the air. See, a pretty traumatic experience when the disciples were the wheat that was getting winnowed. And guess what? God granted Satan's demand. So what was that about? See, did Satan just win here? Um, does he really have that much power? You know what happens when they winnow wheat? The wheat goes up in the air and the chaff gets blown away. The impurities that need to go get carried away on the wind. Yes, Satan was allowed to toss them around, but he was on a really short leash here. Um, he couldn't kill the disciples at that point. He couldn't even harm them. He couldn't even physically harm them. Um, about all he could do was toss them around. And the result of that tossing was that they got purified. They, they literally got the trash beat out of them. I mean, literally. If Satan had known that, he would have left them alone. 
See, if he'd known that what he was getting ready to do was help God and his purposes to, to refine his disciples, he would have left them alone. In verse 32, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus was praying for them as they were being winnowed. How well do you think Jesus' prayers get answered? Pretty well, I think. So Jesus could confidently tell Peter, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. He knew that Peter's faith was going to falter, but that it wasn't going to fail. So before they all stepped in to that tornado that was coming for him just a few minutes later, he gave Peter an assignment. In the aftermath of the storm, he was to strengthen his brothers. So let's make this personal. Is it helpful for us to see the disciples getting tossed around and then God refining them in that process? Yes, it is. That's helpful to us. Um, it encourages us to see their faith not failing in this and then them going on to preach the gospel in all of the then known world. See, that's super encouraging to us. But the big question for us today is this. Will God allow us to get winnowed too? See? In his love for us, will he permit the enemies, the enemy of our souls to beat the trash out of us in order to make us more like Jesus? Well, 15 years ago, I, I was in a routine visit to, um, to see my family doctor when he discovered that I had cancer. Um, I felt fine, so this was a real surprise to me. But I looked at all the options, and I ultimately decided on surgery. So I found the most highly recommended, skilled surgeon that I could come up with. The surgery was scheduled. I showed up at the appointed time. But here's the deal. I felt okay. I actually felt better than okay. I felt great. I didn't feel sick. But the reality was, I was dying of cancer. Three hours later, I was no longer dying of cancer. But I felt terrible. I felt like somebody had dragged me down the freeway by my heels at 80 miles an hour. It was awful. Um, so I was on the road to recovery, though. See, that was the thing. I felt terrible, but I was on the road to recovery. Well, what would have happened if just before that surgery, the surgeon had come into me and said, I'm really sorry, I can't do this surgery. Um, I know that you feel pretty good right now. And when I get done with you, you're going to feel terrible for a while. So I'm sorry, I can't do this to you. Um, just go home and live out what life you have left and enjoy that. See, that would have allowed me to feel good later in that day. Uh, but that would not have been kindness to me. That would have been a kind of hatred to me. Um, it would have been trading my life for my momentary comfort. Well, our God is a faithful surgeon who will make us miserable if the result of that pain is our eternal good. So hear me when I say this to you. God will hurt you he will never harm you. He will hurt you. He will never harm you. And just so that you can see that I'm not making this stuff up, look at what Peter had to say. Peter, the guy who knew something about getting hurt by God for his own eternal good. 
In this salvation you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And I could go on and on in Peter's letters. He had a lot to say about suffering. But also hear me when I say this. When we suffer, God is not punishing us. So if you have surrendered to Jesus, there is no punishment left for your sins. Jesus took that all on the cross. For us to see suffering as punishment is to say that Jesus' death was not enough to cover all of our sins. And that's just flat wrong. Our sins, past, present, and future, were all paid for by our elder brother, Jesus. So if we're not being punished, what is our suffering about? It's about having the character of Christ formed in us. So I have a pastor friend who a few years ago was in a really dark place. He was seeing his own brokenness in his life, um, his selfishness, his desire to build his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And that was after several years in the ministry. In desperation, he asked an older man, just how far did mankind fall? How far did I fall? Well, the older guy looked thoughtful for a minute, and then he said, we'll never understand how far we fell until we begin the long climb back. See? God's work of fully restoring His image in each of us is a lengthy, lifelong climb back up, and we need to be in it for the long haul. Back in John 13, John had begun his description of that last night, those nine chapters, um, that they were spending together by saying this, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. One of the translations says, he loved them to the uttermost. Well, that same Jesus is loving us the same way here this morning. Wasn't just the disciples who get winnowed. We get winnowed too. Life throws us around. We have an enemy who would like to see us dead, but Jesus is praying for us that our faith won't fail. Do you know the Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us? So when John says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the very end, that includes you and me too. Well, some of us here today have believed wrong things about asking and receiving from God. We got offended with him when we asked for things in Jesus' name, and then we didn't receive things the way we expected to. Others of us have seen our suffering as God punishing us for our sins. If you're trapped in either of those boxes today, You don't need to leave this place like that, okay? Uh, Father's love for you is boundless, and there are people here today who would love to hear your story and to pray with you. 
So if you've never surrendered to Jesus at all, you may be listening to all of this and thinking, well, that's, that's okay for you, uh, but you don't know what I've done. See, I'm sure that God is, is not interested in me. Well, let me assure you that you have not outsinned God's grace for you. Saul of Tarsus was a first century religious terrorist. He would go into people's homes. He would drag men, women, and children out in the street. Then he would organize a mob to throw rocks at them until they stopped moving. Okay? Think of him like a, a, a mid-level commander in ISIS. That was his hatred for Christians. And God looked down and said, him. I want him. I'm going to get a hold of him. I'm going to turn him around. And, and he is going to be a trophy of my grace. I'm going to have the guy write half of the New Testament. We'll call him the Apostle Paul. Okay? If God can, can forgive that guy for the damage that he did to the church and to Jesus, you have not outsinned uh, Saul of Tarsus. There's, there's plenty of grace for you. So come on up after the service and, and let us hear your story. Okay? Stand with me and, and let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for that mercy that just goes on and on and on for us. Father, I, I pray for these men and women here today. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today who has asked in your name and then were offended when you didn't answer the way that they thought you should, Lord, I pray that they would be willing to step out of that box today. And Lord, I pray that if there are people that have been confused about the suffering that they're going through and have somehow blamed you as if the blood of Jesus wasn't enough to cover their sins, Lord, I pray that they would be willing to step out of that. And Lord, I pray for any of my friends here who, who haven't made that commitment to you this morning. And Father, I just ask that you would assure them um, that you're ready, willing, and able to forgive anything they have to confess. So Father, we, we just ask that you would receive all of us, that you would continue your work in us, Lord, that you con would continue to make us more like your firstborn son, Jesus. Lord, it's for his sake that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to move into a time of coming to the Lord's table now. Um, if you ladies who are, are going to serve would go ahead and, and come up here. If, um, if you're a believer in Jesus today, you are welcome at this table. Um, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you haven't come to that place of surrendering yourself to him, then I would say skip the table. This table is, is for believers who are remembering what Jesus has done for them. So if, if you don't believe in him today, we're really excited that you're here. But my encouragement to you would be come to Jesus instead. Don't come to a meal that's symbolic. Come to Jesus instead. So um, 
So what we're going to do is um, we're going to, uh, to come up. Uh, there's bread and then there's juice and wine. So obey your conscience in, uh, in what you take there. And then go back to your seat and then we'll all take that together. So come as you're ready. <laughs>